Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. Today we're recording this interview at Full Sail University in Winter Park, Florida. I graduated in 1992. I'm not that old. My guest today is also a graduate of Full Sail and is based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. He's owner of Stickman Sound and specializes in both live and taped television. He's an Emmy winner for HBO Boxing. Please welcome location sound mixer, audio consultant, Fernando Delgado. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Fernando. Now, Fernando, I know you do a lot of things. You wear a lot of different hats in your business, but we always like to start off the show by asking, when you're working as a location sound mixer, what's in your basic audio kit? Just a rundown from mics to mixer to power distribution and everything in between. Well, I don't really have a basic kit. I have a handful of microphones that I like to choose from depending on what we're shooting, you know, if I'm doing something where we're going to be in a loud environment, I'll take something like a Sankin CS3 into the field. If I'm going to be someplace where the weather might be kind of crazy, I'm taking a 416 because I know I'm not going to kill it. If I'm shooting in a studio or a more controlled environment, I might put a cement at the end of my boom pole. Every job I do, I use a sound devices mixer and recorder. So sometimes it's a 664, sometimes it's a 788. It just depends on the job. 90% of the time I'm going out, actually probably 99% of the time I'm going out with Electrosonics Wireless, which may or may not change in the future because of the FCC repack. And then I use, if I'm doing camera links to cameras, I use the Zaxcom uh, QRX system. Sankin Lobs usually, cause 11s. I, although I do like DPA, Lobs as well. I've been using those a little bit more frequently. 7506 headphones or my JH audio in-ears, depending on what we're doing and and my mood. Okay. Now, how is that different? I mean, you've got an in-ear monitor versus a headphone. What's 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 um, the benefit of it? The, the thing that I really like about mixing with my in-ears is the isolation is amazing. And... Uh, my ears are so sensitive that you can actually, like in a 416, for example, you can actually hear the artifacting happening in the microphone. And also, one of the things that I really like is if I'm shooting in a really loud environment, in addition to the hearing protection, you really listen at way lower levels. So you're actually pushing less volume into your ear because of the incredible isolation. So I can mix on my in-ears a 12-hour day and not have any real ear fatigue where I've noticed that if I'm mixing on 416s, especially if it's a louder environment, I got to push more volume to cover any bleed that's happening through the headphones. And, um, and so at the end of the day, you're a little bit more fatigued than you would be. Okay. Yeah, I noticed a lot of people were starting to do that, and I, I had not personally tried it. So yeah, I was the, the thing that I would suggest if you're going to go that route, and it's kind of hard to do, but you want something that is is a little bit, 7506s are not the best sounding headphones, right? It's a great reference monitor. And so you don't necessarily have to, although I think my ears sound great when I play music, they're... You know, when I listen to them, I know that they're a little bass heavy, so I am cautious if I'm going to engage a roll-off. Okay. Um, and the one thing I'm going to do different if I get another set, which I will probably do in the next couple years, is uh, there are, like JH, for example, has a reference monitor version that is supposed to be flat. Um, and that's probably the route that I'll go. 
Okay. Now, you're also the owner, founder of Stickman Sound. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Stickman Sound, basically, I created the company because I was not happy with any of the support companies that existed at the time. I didn't, I didn't feel like I could call a company up and say, I need this, and was able to talk to somebody on the phone immediately that could service whatever I needed. And it certainly didn't exist in Las Vegas. So that's what Stickman Sound is. It's a support company. If you need to add some gear to your kit to accommodate a shoot, when you talk to Marcus in my shop, he knows exactly what you're working with. You know, he knows the right questions to ask on, how are we interfacing this? You know, if we're adding an extra channel to your 663 package, for example, and you have to go in TA3, well, Marcus has worked with the equipment enough to know that he needs to ask that question. You know, I don't think that there's very many other support houses that specifically deal with field audio that have people on their staff that even care enough to ask those questions. So that was the big thing with Stickman Sound is we, we are geared solely for the support of the field mixer. So whether you need a full kit or just need pieces to add to your kit, whether you're renting or buying, or whether you just need advice and you're not really sure which way to go, we'll sit down, take the time, have a conversation with you about it. Okay, that's great. So you don't get stuff you don't need. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I, I get a lot, of, a lot of people hit me up and just ask, should I buy gear or should I rent gear or what should I get? And I believe in giving good, honest advice and not kind of fluffing it up. So our whole business model is to just be supportive. You know, if we make a sale, if we make a rental, that's great. That's awesome. Um, we're fortunate enough at this point to be busy enough to pay the bills. So if we get a little bit busier, that's fantastic. But I want it to be for the right reasons. Okay. Yeah. And actually speaking of that, we do ask, you know, when, when is a good time to buy? When is a good time to rent? I would say, okay, so if you're the mixer that is just starting out, don't buy. Save your money. Pay off your student loans. Get yourself out of debt. Don't buy gear. Uh, and there's a couple reasons. A, if you're just starting out, you don't know where you're going to end up. So you don't know if the gear that you're going to buy today is going to be relevant tomorrow. could be a waste of money. And I could tell you a million examples of people that have not listened to my advice and then called me up later and saying, hey, you looking to buy a piece of gear? You know, because they realize that they don't need it or they don't like it or they don't want it for whatever reason. Or they just can't afford it because, you know, they have bills that they should have paid where they thought this gear was going to bring in money and it doesn't. But I would say rent, borrow, if you can, as much as possible. Listen to different microphones. Use different mixers. Try different types of wireless systems. Everybody has a preference in style. Nobody's ear is the same. We all hear things differently. And you're going to want gear that sounds good and that is functional for the stuff that you're doing. So my advice to pretty much everybody is, first off, don't finance your equipment. Pay cash. That way, if you don't make money on it, it's not costing you anything. Um, and secondly, rent or borrow equipment until you know that this is right for you. Listen to four or five different types of shotgun microphones. Go on the forums, have conversations with your peers, and see what people like. But just because I like a CS3, you might think it sounds horrible, and it doesn't work for your application. And that's another uh, question, I guess, too. There's so many options, say, when it comes to wireless. You've got Electrosonic, you've got Wizicom, you've got Zaxcom. I mean, what do you, and, and Audio Limited now with uh, sound devices. So how do you choose? Try different things, rent. I mean, that's what we do. I'm in a very fortunate position, I guess, at this point with my company where I've become friends with a lot of manufacturers. So I have direct relationships with people. Um, I encourage everybody to contact manufacturers if they have questions about the gear, you know, attend conventions and meet these people face to face because you too will become friends with them. Okay, I'll give you a really good example. When the CMIT first came out, you know, Sheps has always made a really nice microphone. But this was a microphone that was like, hmm, this, by the looks of it, is going to serve a niche of my market very well. Well, I rented my first CMIT, 
and I took it out on a couple commercial shoots that I was doing. And I realized that, wow, this is a really great microphone when I'm in a controlled environment, but it's got such a wide pattern. It's a beautiful wide pattern, right? So I'm not knocking the microphone. It's a beautiful wide pattern, but so much so that if I am doing like a documentary or a reality show where off-axis rejection is really important, the CMIT is not the right microphone for that. The CS3 is. But the only reason I know that is because I've spent time with these microphones and I've listened to them and I've compared them. So, and that's another reason why I say not to buy. It might cost you a little bit of money, but what it's gonna save you in the long run is, is a ton of grief because you can go and say, okay, you know, this week I'm gonna rent this microphone and take it out on whatever shoots I have and use it. And then next week I'm gonna rent that microphone and take it out on whatever shoots I have. And then, you know, at the end of, let's say a month or two months worth of just renting a couple microphones, mics are not expensive to rent. So, you know, then you go, oh, you know, this microphone worked really great in that environment, but not so good in this one. This is a great overall microphone. So maybe this is the microphone that I get first. And then when I start making some money on my gear, I'll give myself a treat by having this other microphone that only works really good in certain scenarios. Okay. That's great. Yeah. And as an audio consultant, one of us can call up and say, hey, um, I've got this job coming up. I've got this, you know, and, and you can consult and, and kind of guide us. Absolutely. Yeah. And I enjoy doing it. I like talking shop. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you were involved with HBO Boxing from what I saw online, 2001 to 2018. You actually won an Emmy for Outstanding Achievement in Live Audio. Talk to a little bit about what it was like doing that. Um, well, I still work with HBO today. They're one of my longest and one of my favorite clients. Uh, I've worked with HBO, like like you said, since about 2001. They're just really wonderful people to work with. The shows are a lot of fun. They don't have a lot of turnover on their crew. So people that were shooting the show 15 years ago are still shooting the show today. A lot of the producers are, are all the same. And, and the thing that I think is really great about HBO in particular is the leadership has changed. The people that are, that are running the shows, the unit managers, the executive producers, the, the people that are staff at HBO, those people have changed. Not all the Some of the people are still there and they've kind of worked their way up the ranks, right? But for the most part, people are there for a little while. They get really, really good at their job, learn the HBO way to do things, and then they move on to bigger and better things, right? The culture is the same, no matter what the turnover is. So I don't know what kind of magic dust they're sprinkling at the top, like at the tippy top of the food chain over there, but their culture is amazing. They treat people with a ton of respect. People are not yellers and screamers, not even when we're on the air. And they seem, from my point of view, they seem to really understand that everybody has good nights and everybody has bad nights. And the, the, the thing is, if we can kind of balance out those good and bad nights, we're going to have pretty fantastic shows. And yeah, they're just really great people to work with. I just really love working with them. And I've um, about six months ago or so, they asked me if I would take over their ringside position, which is kind of a coveted spot on that, on that crew. Um, so I've been doing that for the last uh, six months or so. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of fun too. I love building the show. I love, I love doing live events in general. You know, I like the you can't screw up factor. Right. It appeals to my like kind of how I like things. I like to do it right the first time. So they kind of force you to. You got one chance. Yeah. Yep. Well, walk us through, what's a, what's a setup, uh, an audio setup for an HBO boxing? Because there's multiple matches, correct? Yeah, so basically, you know, the whole idea is we're co it's coverage, right? The events are happening whether we're there or not. So from an audio standpoint, they have a gentleman named Randy Flick who has been their A1 for, I think, 20 years, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But he mixes a show inside the broadcast truck. He's mixing on a Calrec uh, console. I don't remember which one it is. But anyway, that doesn't matter. He's, he's mixing on a Calrec console inside the broadcast truck. I work in the capacity as an A2. And so 
um, as the ringside A2, it's my responsibility to take all the hardware that is needed to do that show into the venue and to set it up. So we have effects microphones that need to be hung. We have boom kits that need to be set up so that on show day, we have boom operators that come in and work the active corners, meaning the red and the blue corners where they go in between rounds. And then I set up the broadcast table. So the the table that the broadcasters sit at ringside that has their headset microphones, their IFBs, all of the communications that's necessary. So PLs for stage manager, PLs for myself, PLs for some of the RoboCam operators, uh, sometimes they have, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's basically like an upside down jib that moves around the arena. You know, so we set up communications for those guys. There's three operators on that. We set up uh, courtesy listens for executives or any VIPs that uh, HBO might uh, have. You know, like we have like the uh, president of HBO, all the major events and some of the smaller ones too, he will be there. And he will sit in one of those seats and he will listen to the broadcast while he's watching the match live. So we'll set up VIP listens. And then during the show, so uh, we'll set all that stuff up, let's say on a Friday. At the very end of the day, they fax out all the video and then they fax out all the audio. And we go through with the technical manager every single line. Like he will sit in the director's seat and talk to us from the director's headset on every single PL that we have set up, every single headset that has an IFB, the hand mics. We will talk down every single line and make sure that not only is it working on the broadcast side, but we have to have pre-fade listens for a lot of these people as well. Make sure all of that stuff is set up inside the truck properly. Um, And we'll go through every single line. Then we'll go home for the night. Next day we'll come in uncover everything because we cover up everything so that it's all not visible, you know, and and that it doesn't get dusty or dirty or whatever. Come in the next day, uncover everything, turn all the gear on, and then do that fax again. Go through every single line, make sure everything from last night is still working today. And then at that point, it's all housekeeping, right? HBO has a very high standard. You can't have a crooked mic flag that doesn't work, right? You can do that stuff on a lot of other networks. You cannot do that with HBO. So we put the nicest looking mic flags that we have on. We make sure that everything is dressed proper, that there isn't a flaw anywhere in the shot. And that goes for audio too. So if I have a handheld microphone in my talent's hand, if you pay attention, you won't see a black microphone and a silver connector, right? It's a black connector. And that cable looks good. It doesn't have like gaff tape residue on it, right? Because that doesn't work. It's, it's all about the picture. So then it's all about housekeeping, getting show ready, making sure everything is in place. And then usually we'll do camera meeting. Then we'll do the official facts. And that's where the directors and producers and executive producers actually sit in their chair. And then we do the exact same thing we already did with a technical manager, only with them so that they know that they are seeing every single camera, that they're hearing every single microphone, and that all the IFBs and all the communications are working. Then we go to lunch or dinner. Come back from that. Usually by then the doors are open. There's usually a fight going on. And so at a certain point during all of that, you know, usually about an hour or so before we're due to go on the air, we'll do a rehearsal where the camera guys will shoulder up and the announcers will show up. We'll do a quick rehearsal. Then we'll do any pre-tape stuff that they want to do. So if we have to do promos, you know, Jim Lampley, I'll hand him his microphone or he'll sit at his headset at his desk and they'll do all the pre-tape stuff. Then after that, those guys will go into makeup and then I'll get everything one last look over make sure everything is looking good. And then, and then we do our show. Wow. And then we tear it up and go home. Now is, is the event in the same venue every time? Oh no. No, no, no. It's a different venue every time. Okay. Yeah, so sometimes it's in Vegas, which is great because I live about five minutes away from all the venues that you would see an event like that at. But like next month in August, I'm going to be in Atlantic City for a couple days doing a show. And then I think we have one in L.A. So, yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, we go. I've been all over at least the U.S. with HBO. I've never been in or not. The farthest I've gone with them has been Puerto Rico. 
Okay. Now, do you also provide support for, for live sound at the, at the event? Uh, sometimes. We will, you know, most of that stuff is provided by NEP, which is a truck company that provides all the, you know, all the truck, the gear, the microphones, the whole shibizzle. And they have big contracts with HBO. So most of that stuff comes from them. But every once in a while, when they need some support, especially if it's in Vegas and they need it in a pinch, um, I'm the guy that they'll go to. Or because I travel to go to a lot of their events, if they need something in a pinch, they'll call me and be like, hey, can you bring this or can you bring that? Or, you know, ship this small little console, you know, for this little side thing that we're going to do at the event. So there is a little bit of that. But for the most part, HBO is really more like, I love those people, and I'm not looking to make a big paycheck. I'm just looking to have fun doing a show. So the gear rental is, well, and to be honest with you, I don't really care about the gear rental. I know a lot of people out there just want to get their gear working because it's more money. But that doesn't mean you're going to have more money at the end. Like, I would rather just go do a good job in whatever capacity the client needs. If they need gear, great. You know, we can provide that. If they don't need gear, that's great too because um, I also look at it like every time I do a job on somebody else's equipment, I'm probably going to see something that I don't have in my inventory. So it's a new opportunity for me to get my hands on something that I'm not already familiar with. And I love that. And then it also gives me an opportunity to see how other people do things. Like, what was your thought when you put this kit together? And sometimes it's like, wow, you need help, right? And go us. We're actually doing things really like we're on the right track. But then other times it's like, wow, this was very clever, you know? And sometimes you get some ideas from some other people. And I think that's pretty cool too. Yeah. That's great. Now, when we're at home watching a match, a boxing match, what what are we hearing there? What are you doing that's giving us that that feeling? The way the miking, how are you... Uh, for you know, for the viewer, what what are you doing? Well, I am personally not doing anything during the event, other than making sure that my talent is taken care of. Um, during the event, I'm the guy that hands the microphones to the talent. I'm you know, I'm the one that makes sure that they get the right microphone in their hand, that they're hearing what the producer and director is saying in their ear, uh, and then I manage this. I help manage the set. There's uh, stage managers and PAs that their job is to manage the set, but I'm there as well. And so if somebody on set gets in the weeds, I'm always there. Okay. You know, and I'm always down to help because, you know, this is a team effort. We have a show to do and it's all about the show. It's not like, well, that's not my job. That's not how this works. It's like, no, no, we're on the air right now. Millions of people are watching literally. So total team effort, 100%. Yeah. And then I put out fires, you know, if something does go wrong. Um, and, and in my opinion, that's really what the client pays me for setting up the gear and hanging out with my friends. I'm kind of happy to do for free. Right. But I think that the real value in hiring somebody like me is I know systems. I'm really good at troubleshooting and I kind of thrive on it a little bit in a weird, maybe sadistic way. I kind of like when things go wrong because it gives me an opportunity to kind of jump into it and put out that fire before anybody ever knows about it, which by the way, is one of the most rewarding things, you know, fire is happening. Oh my God. Right. And then the audience never knows or the director never finds out about it. So, so what would be a, an emergency? What would be a serious issue in the middle of a live match? Um, Let's see. Well, any piece of equipment goes down, you know, we have, we have these boxes that sit out on the table that our microphones and our IFBs plug into, and it's all network audio. So on the back side of it, you've got Cat5 connections, and then you've got your XLRs for your microphones and stuff like that. If any one of those, you know, sometimes gear just goes down, and this stuff travels in a 52-foot truck, and it goes from venue to venue to venue, and it's got all sorts of people pushing the cases, you know, so things sometimes come unseated or unplugged, or sometimes they just go out. Like you're in the middle of a broadcast and somebody's headset box just goes out, right? You know, we have uh, spares and we have, we always have a copper backup, meaning we have, there is one 
because it's mostly a fiber show where we run fiber from the truck to the ringside position, right? But we do always have one copper DT12, which is a 12-channel audio snake that runs from the truck to ringside. And we have one microphone, one IFB, and one PL that are plugged into those. And the reason why is because if the whole system goes down, we have one microphone and one IFB for our talent so that they can continue talking on the air. And we have one PL so that our stage manager or me or whoever, and it's set up inside the truck to where the A1 can dial the channels that they want that PL to go to in a pinch. So it, it's kind of set up to not really talk to anybody, the default. But if we go and we're in a pinch, the first thing he's going to do, and he probably already has it set up this way now that I'm thinking about it, is the audio channel. That way I can pick up the headset and go, what do I do? Right? Like, where are we going with this? Because the guy in the truck is the lead. Like, where are we going with this? Okay, give this to, to Tammy, our stage manager, and she's going to work with the talent and talk to the producer. And then he'll dial up the producer's PL. I hand that over to the stage manager. And then I concentrate on figuring out what the hell happened. Why did my entire system just go down? And that line is already run, and it's it's ready oh, there, yeah. right? So it's yeah, not yeah. something like, yo, we got to run that line. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's ready. It's standing by. Like, the microphone is there with a very nice mic flag, even though it never gets used. Because that one time it does get used, if it's already looking, that doesn't work. <laughs> now, when we're listening as a, as a viewer at home, how are we hearing those, those boxing sounds, those impacts and punches? We, we put... Uh, we put effects mics. So, um, and every show is a little bit different because of camera technology and where they can place cameras nowadays. We've kind of had to really work with the directors and the camera department to figure out where we can keep our microphones, you know, cause like now they have cameras that fly all over the place. So back in the day we had two four sixteens and an XY pattern. I think it was like eight and a half feet above the ring. And that height and that pattern was perfect. And, you know, and then we also would hang uh, neutral corner microphones and we would angle them in such a way to where everything complemented everything else. Where, so Randy and the truck could go and, and mix all of these microphones. But since we have flying around cameras now, we're having to figure out, okay, well, where can we put these microphones to where the cameras aren't getting wrapped up in our mic lines? So... Uh, we have boom operators in each of the active corners, and they basically track the action. And then in between rounds, they stand up and boom the corners. That way, if the director decides, hey, we're going to the red corner, Randy's got a fader, brings that up, and you're hearing the red corner. Okay. So we also put lobs on the trainers. We also put a lob on the referees. Okay. Now, how are you micing those guys up when it comes to putting on a lob? Do you have any special technique or expendables you like to use? Or? No, we cl literally, because it has to happen, we have to get the mic on and off of these people so quickly. It's not like uh, a normal production audio person who would take, you know, some moleskin or some other type of sticky material to hide a microphone or any of that. We clip it on their, their shirt and put the pack in their front pocket. Uh, except for the ref, we might clip it to their belt or usually we'll just put it in their back pocket and leave the antenna sticking out the back. But in, in the sports environment, it's not like a regular production environment where people don't wanna see the microphone. Everybody is fully aware that these microphones are present. So we don't make any effort whatsoever to hide them. We just, we use uh, Mickey twos and I think we're, we are using Sennheiser body packs. Okay. All right. Now, tell me about the winning the, the Emmy for Outstanding Audio Achievement or Live Audio. I don't really, to be honest with you, I don't really know anything about that. No? No. I got a certificate in the mail. I'm very grateful to have been on an Emmy-winning crew, but I wasn't the person that mixed that show. Randy Flick was. So I'm just, like, I'm just grateful to work with people that do that kind of work. Because, of course, you're learning from these people as you go as well. Honestly, man, I don't even remember. I don't know where th that show took place. That one, the, I couldn't tell you who was fighting. I couldn't tell you what position I worked because they all run together. I didn't even know that the show was up for an Emmy. All I know is that I got this certificate in the mail that 
says HBO, you know, Emmy for sports and my name is on it. So it's a great honor. I'm very excited about it. But we didn't even actually get the statue until like a couple of years ago. Okay. My, my team got the statue because I thought it would be really great. Yeah. But, but you're part of the team. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was part of the team and I still am part of the team, which I'm very grateful for. But I couldn't tell you the details about like that show or any of that. Um, I didn't even know about it till way after everybody else knew about it. I think I was out of town on a show on some reality show somewhere. So like all the celebration, any celebration that happened when that, you know, when the team was awarded that, I wasn't part of any of it. <laughs> okay. That's cool. No, all right. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I would feel a little bit differently about it had I been the person mixing the show. Um, I think maybe I'd take a little bit more ownership of it. But at the end of the day, um, the guy in charge of the sound department, he's responsible for the design. He's, you know, he tells us where he wants his microphones. He chooses what microphones we're using. He's the guy pushing the faders. They're his compressors. They're his EQs. It's his mix. I'm just really glad to know Randy, you know, you know what I mean? Right. right like yeah. he's, he's pretty awesome. I learned something when I work with him all the time. He's one of those guys that's just incredibly smart. So I'm just really lucky to be on that team. And now that I'm doing the ringside position, I'm spending even more time with them because I'm doing uh, pretty much all of their shows now. So, um, yeah, I'm just glad to know them. That's sweet. Now, uh, in contrast, you've also done some of the Ultimate Fighting Championship-type programs. What is that like in comparison? It's a totally different environment. And, see, and I think the thing that's really interesting is, like, when I was on The Ultimate Fighter, the reality show, I was responsible for everything, right? I hired the crew. I designed all the all the gear, whether it was the system that we built into the house so that we could surveil everybody for the producers to kind of keep an eye, you know, the eye in the sky system, um, the multi-track system to record everybody's audio uh, at both locations. We did stuff like, uh, you know, when, when I first got onto the show, we added stuff like GPS time code generators so that I could sync the locations, which they were not doing at the time. They were like, they would put put them both on time of day, but there would always be a discrepancy. Um, so we added stuff like GPS time code generators so that we could sync both locations uh, and they were frame accurate. So that sh that was actually a really great experience for me. That whole show was really fantastic because although I was already doing a lot of sound supervisor work, that show was in my hometown and it happened twice a year and I did the show for seven years. So I got to learn about the show. I got to learn about the sport. And then as every season progressed, I would modify. So by the end of my stay on the show, we had this completely dialed in system uh, for everything, for all of our dialogue microphones and how that was going to arrive to post and how we organized everything for them so that their workflow on the post side was easier uh, to all of our effects microphones, which we did a lot of. You know, and then just developing a system to where I'm a big believer in kind of flying under the radar. I think as sound people, we kind of inherently like to do that anyway. And um, it really gave me an opportunity to work on a single project long enough to really kind of refine that system to where, for the most part, when I was working on the show, our crew was like completely under the radar. We would even have these post-production, like post-mortem meetings after every season. And the producers would give notes to the director of photography for like two hours, you know, like pages and pages and pages of notes that things that they would have liked different in every episode or with this interview or that interview or whatever. And there were a lot of those meetings where at the very end, everybody's getting ready to get up because they're done talking. And I'd be like, excuse me, guys, anything for audio? And they would all look at each other and be like, anything for audio? Anything, anything? And they're like, no, man, just keep doing what you're doing. Everything is great. And one year, the director of photography was actually like, he got all pissed off at me because he's just like, I don't understand how we can come in every season. And, and it's just like, well, I'm communicating with these people daily. So if there's a discrepancy on day one, it's handled by day two, you know? <laughs> And that was a really great experience because I think I really got to 
I think I really matured on that show in the sense that I really started to understand what my responsibility was, not only as a production sound mixer, like fully understand, but also how to manage crew, how to supervise, how to become more of a leader and learned a lot about integrity on that show as well. Okay. And when it comes to, you mentioned the effects mics, how many mics are on that canvas, you know, and above and below and... Um, on that show, we did, man, we did a lot. I stole the HBO model and did 416s overhead in an XY pattern. We put camera mics on every, actually we put, on that show, we put two camera mics on every camera. So we would put a 416 on channel three. Uh, we were shooting on the Sony uh, XD cameras. So there's four channels of audio. So we do production audio on channels one and two, which we would send wirelessly. We would do a 416 on channel three and we would do a MKH 70 on channel four. And the main reason we started doing that was for fight effects. So if a fighter, if a fight was happening and they went into the fences and they were rolling around in the fences, they would fall out of my pattern, out of the spray of my microphones in the center. And so I would really rely heavily on those camera mics because also, you know, if they're right in the fences, the camera guy is going to take his camera. He's going to stick it right there so they can get that close-up shot. And so I'd get all of the grunting and like uh, skin noise, all yeah. that noise and stuff like that. Um, and so, of course, when you have all of that stuff and you go into mix with it, you can just really put the listener right there in the action. Uh, so we would do that. There are these pedestals that the camera guys stand on so that they can put their cameras over the fence, right, For while they're shooting. Uh, we put 416s underneath those pedestals, also an XY pattern. So I had a total of eight of those going around the octagon. We also had MKH-50s that we would put right next to the coach cameras. So the coaches would be in each corner yelling and screaming at their fighters as the fight's going on. So they would put like a little lipstick camera so that they had video of the coaches, and I would put it a little MKH-50 right underneath the camera. Uh, so we had all of their audio. And I used the 50 because it's, it's a super or a hypercardioid. I think it's a supercardioid. But it's got a nice little tail in the back of it. And so if I had fighters that were rolling up right on the fences right there where the microphone were every once in a while, not very often, but every once in a while, I'd get, like, some gold there. Wow. And then I had a sure... SM91, which is, it looks like a PZM microphone, but it's frequently used for bass drums. Uh, that, you know, it's a microphone that you literally just throw in, into the hole of the bass drum as close to the head as you can. And a lot of times that's the microphone that gives you like that clicking, you know, that attack sound of the bass. And then I also had a, an AKG D D112 that I would uh, put under those, under the octagon as well. That way, if there were any real good takedowns, all of that bottom end uh, vibration that happens underneath the octagon, we would capture. Nice. And then crowd mics. You know, we always had an audience, so there was always 416s hanging above the audience, usually a stereo pair. Nice. So are they mixing, what, 5.1, 7.1? What are they doing now? No, nah, man, it's a cable show. They're probably just mixing it in stereo. Okay. Yeah, I tried to get in on the post-production process before I left the show, and they wouldn't allow me to. So I don't really know... Uh, very much about the post-production process on that show, sadly. Okay. Yeah. Well, kind of switching gears a little bit, I saw that you were sound utility on Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Yeah, I, I just day played on that. Yeah. Uh, I had a buddy that did the show, and he went and got married. So I covered for him for a few days. So what was that, that like? It was a lot of fun. The crew was amazing. And, you know, uh, doing utility work is really great because somebody else has the weight of the recording on their shoulders, and then you can kind of sit back and and watch and kind of learn. And then, you know, utilities, oftentimes, that's your second boom guy. So anytime there's a second boom needed on set, you know, you do a little bit of light boom work. But mostly, you know, when you're the utility, you're the third man on the crew. So you're pushing the heaviest of the gear, and you're going and getting the coffee, and you're doing the timesheets for uh, everybody else on the crew. And so, and I like to do that, by the way. You know, I've had a couple sound mixers that I've utilityed for call me up and be like, you do a lot of production sound mixing. 
You've got an Emmy under your belt. Like, why? Why? It's like, hey, man, you never stop learning. Yeah. You're going to do something that I've never seen before. You're going to do something that maybe I've considered but didn't think would be proper. You're going to do something that I hate, that I think, wow, I can't believe this person does that. Regardless of how it happens or what happens, I'm going to learn something. Whether it's positive or negative, I'm going to learn something by working behind somebody that does what I do. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, all of our skills are just collection of other people's ideas that we thought were good. And so we put them in our tool bag, right? So I, um, I did the same thing for a movie that's in theaters right now called Show Dogs. And that actually, the, the production sound mixer, um, his name is Bayard Carey, awesome, awesome guy to work with. He called me up and he was like, dude, I'm looking at your IMDB right now. Why do you want to be on my crew? And I was like, well, I looked at your IMDB when I got the call for this and you're an Oscar nominated production sound mixer that's been mixing big movies for 30 years. Why wouldn't I want to sit behind you for two weeks? Yeah. You know? So um, I'll do that whenever I get an opportunity. That's cool. Like you said, you're still always trying to learn. You're always trying to pick up new things. Everybody does stuff differently, man. You know, and somebody's always going to have a tool in their kit that you, you know, you could stand to use in yours. I think it's important. I saw here too, you had, uh, you worked as a sound mixer, second unit for a movie called Kin. Yes. What, what, What was that about? I don't think it's been released yet. Yeah, I don't think it's out. That one was kind of a blur. It was fun though. I, I do remember uh, Zoe Kravitz was on it. It was directed by two brothers. So it was very interesting. There was one point where we were shooting uh, at a location and the director, the directors, one of them goes up to camera A and says, you come with me. And then the other one goes up to camera B and says, you come with me. And they went in two different directions. And then at one point, one of the directors looks at us and says, you're coming with us. The thing that I remember about it was I looked at the schedule and we had multiple locations all in one day, which is not a typical thing for a decently budgeted feature, which this was. And so typically on a job that I would do like that, I would build a sound cart and then probably have a follow cart as well for my boom guy. And we'd bring out all the toys. So we had everything at our disposal. But I took a look at the schedule and I was like, I don't think a cart is going to serve us well here. So I built a bag and I took a cart so that I could keep my bag on the cart when we were stationary. But that ended up being a huge benefit because at the very end, when what had happened, when we found this out later, is the location we were shooting at, we got to really late and they didn't want us there anymore. And so they gave us like 30 minutes to get everything that we needed shot before they were going to ask security to have us removed. So that's why everything kind of happened the way it did. Right now, whether or not they would have or not, I don't know. I don't know. But we we like went on this frantic shooting thing where they went and they shot one camera went and shot a bunch of B roll of some other stuff that was going down, and then we shot this this scene that I don't even remember reading on the script. I did what I don't remember if it was on the paperwork or not. But we went and it was like E and G style. My boom guy was running. I was literally running behind the camera the entire time, and and then all of a sudden we were wrapped. And then, and the directors, the AD, and even the talent came over to myself and my boom guy and was like, you guys were really great. And that was the first time that even talent had come over, like gone, kind of gone out of their way to come over and say goodbye to us as a crew. But I just, that's the only part of that shoot I really do remember is it was just madness. And I remember thinking at the end while we were loading our gear, thank goodness I built a bag and brought my harness because we would not have been able to accommodate them at the very end of the job had we not been so mobile. Wow. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So pay attention to the schedule. Yeah. You know, you know, you never know what you're going to get into, even if it's a, a very put together production, sometimes put together productions fall apart and you still need to be flexible enough to accommodate. What would you say was the most interesting project you've worked on? I think the most interesting thing I've had the wonderful pleasure of working on is I have a friend who owns a company called Flightline Films, and we have a lot of our equipment in his uh, production truck, which it's a 53-foot 
expando that has you know tons and tons of camera equipment and stuff in it but his his clientele he he focuses on aerial production and so we have done four or five of the blue origin launches in the time that I've been working with, he's done more of them than I have, but we've, we've put a couple of these rocket launches, uh, on the air and there is nothing more intense than mixing a live broadcast where a rocket ship is going to space and then coming down and landing 10 minutes later. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. It was one of the most intense. It got to a point during the launch at one point, it was so loud that I couldn't tell. I actually turned my speakers in the control room all the way off because I couldn't tell if it was bleed from the rocket actually taking off or if the sound was coming from my speakers. They just, it was just so damn loud. And it was the rocket taking off. Like I turned the speakers down and the room didn't get any quieter. (laughs) Now, here's a question. How do you set level when there is no sound check for a launch? When it comes to you know recording the the educated afterburn. guess yeah educated guess yeah yeah um, I when we did a location scout before our very first launch they introduced us to all these rocket scientists and we go out to the launch pad and they kind of explain where the rocket lives and this is what this does and and I asked a couple of them I said so what kind of sounds does this thing make before it takes off like before the big rocket thruster fires off surely there's got to be you know like sounds of the rudders because they do a check right before they actually lift off they'll do a check and make sure that all the rudders are working properly and everything is working and and he said yeah there's probably you know you'll probably hear you know the sounds of the rudders and they kind of sound very mechanical but they're not very loud and they're like but we don't really know what it sounds like before it takes off because the nearest person is two miles away and, you know, we've never put microphones out to see what it sounds like. So that was a very interesting challenge, just like not knowing at all how loud or quiet some of these systems were going to be. So it was just, you know, educated guess. And if you listen to the first broadcast, it, like each one has gotten progressively better because the first one, it, it was just complete unknown. You know, so even stuff like compression, how much do I need to compress? You know, do I even need makeup gain because these things are so loud? You know, do I use the compression kind of as a pad as well? You know, so like all of that was a complete mystery. And how much do I pad this mic? If if do I need to? Well, do you need to gain it up at all? Like, mm. can it can it be like just one click on? Yeah. And also an interesting challenge was we were not able to use phantom powered microphones anywhere near the launch pad. Or the landing pad. The closest uh, condenser microphone was 500 feet away from the launch pad or the landing pad because there's so many flammable fumes in the air around that time that they were worried that if the seal on those connections wasn't airtight, which I don't know if they are, I don't think they are, that it could potentially just blow the whole damn place up. Wow. So we had to use all dynamic microphones on the launch pad itself. So if you go on my Instagram, you'll see a couple microphones that have been pretty charred. Nice. Yeah, I think I, I did see one that was just cooked, and, but I yeah, wasn't D1, quite sure what had happened. It was a D112 that got, yeah. got a cooking from a rocket thruster. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That was close. Yeah, yeah. That microphone was about 12 feet. Oh, really? From Oh, yeah, I got right up in there because I didn't know what anything sounded like. And I knew... It was so loud, everything was going to blow out anyway. So really, the microphones I put on the launch pad uh, were really to get the pre-launch sounds. Okay. Because I knew as soon as those main thrusters went, it was going to get so loud, I was going to go to my faraway mics anyway. Um, I already kind of had that in my head, you know, for my mix. So I knew as soon as, and, and like the one that was nearest the thrusters, I knew it was going to get cooked, but I wanted to get that low-end rumble, you know, but that thing takes off so quickly. By the time the microphone dies, the, lo- the thing is already gone. And I've long killed that microphone to the world. Yeah, because it's there, you're hearing it, and then it's burnt. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but by, usually by the time it gets to the point where it is no longer functioning, um, I'm not on that microphone anymore. I'm usually 
moved on to other mics. And that's a live mix kind of thing where you're mm-hmm. blending these mics trying to create this. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. That's cool. All right. So now we always have to ask, what was your worst onset experience? Well, my worst onset experience was I had a show that I was working on where I had essentially like an audio PA. We, we called them our interns. Their only job was to put microphones on people and learn. And so one of my interns was a fresh out of high school, 18-year-old young lady. And I had a talent that kept asking her out. He was 35 and married, by the way. But he kept asking her out, asking her out, asking her out. Finally got to a point where she started to feel really uncomfortable. We took that problem to production. And the executive producer's response was, find something else for her to do. And that didn't work for me. So... They ultimately ended up calling me into a meeting and tried to convince me that that was the morally correct thing to do. Oh, and that it was like the OSHA way to handle sexual harassment. Right. And I basically told him, and this, it cost me, it cost me that gig. It cost me that client and it's cost me a lot of money. But um, I basically told him, I was like, look, man, if you're trying to convince me that this is the morally right thing to do in this situation, you're disgusting. And when I told him he was disgusting, and granted, I probably should have chosen a kinder word, but I was kind of like beside myself in disbelief. But basically, I told him, yeah, you're disgusting. And he said, okay, (laughs) we're going to replace you. So we finished out that show. But after that, the production company that hired us for that show basically blackballed us from doing any of their other productions. We were servicing other productions at the time as well and so as each of those shows kind of ended they've just okay wow just yeah but you were doing the right thing you know you i believe so i you know i've got kids and so you know it's one of those things where i'm not you know it was a bad situation but i feel like i did the right thing if she would have been my daughter and somebody else would have handled it that way I probably would have gone and shaken that person's hand and been like, thank you for at least having the integrity to stand up, you know? And, and that's kind of what I've tried really, really hard to take away from that experience was, you know, I've got two kids and I've talked to my kids about this whole thing. And I actually really thought the first, when this first happened, this happened about two years ago, when it first happened, I thought I was going to lose my company because we were servicing so much so many shows and doing so much business with that company in particular that it was paying my payroll. So I really thought like a year out, I thought we were going to be out of business. So, but, but now it's been a couple years and I look at that experience and I can look at my son and be like, yo man, don't ever compromise your integrity for a paycheck. Like there is no amount of money that is worth uh, compromising your integrity. Hmm. Um, I've lost a lot of friends as a result of this whole experience, a lot of people from my team stuck with me and did not go back to that show the subsequent season. Uh, about half of them did. And so I don't work with a lot of those people anymore. I just kind of, I, I kind of stuck my neck out for a crew member and I kind of expect the same in return, I guess. So maybe that's the right way to handle it. Maybe it's the wrong way. I don't really know, but that's how I'm handling it. You know, a lot of people are self-preservationists, so they've kind of cut me out of their world because they've continued to work for that client, which is fine. Business is business. You know, that's how things happen sometimes. But it it did cost me a lot of money, and it did cost me a lot of grief. And um, at the end of the day, though, I'm I'm proud of the fact that I didn't fold because I knew I had had a lot to lose. Mm. So, but without question, my worst production experience ever. I never in a million years thought that I would have been in a scenario like that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We always try to be prepared, but going to an audio gig, did you ever forget any equipment? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've forgotten microphones. I have forgotten uh, my expendables. Yes. I've, I've forgotten all sorts of stuff. So how did you, how'd you get by? Think quick, make phone calls, call in favors, you know, um, compromise, improvise. Uh, there's always a solution. It might not always be the solution that makes people the happiest, but there's always a solution. 
So, and I think more than anything, like if there's, if there's something you don't have a solution for, man up and tell production because somebody in production will usually have a solution. Like there's always a fix. So if it's not something that you can handle internally quickly, go to production and let them know. And they might not think very much of you at the time, but they'll be very grateful that you brought the problem to their attention before it became a real problem. That's good. That's good. Now, for those of our listeners getting started, do you have any freelance tips? Don't borrow money ever, except for maybe to buy a house. We're here at Full Sail, and um, I come here several times a year to talk to students, uh, to try to give back as much as I can. And one of the things that I always try to impress upon students, that I, I, I always try to impress upon it with all of my peers as well, is I lived a life in debt for 15 of the 20 years that I've been a freelancer. And when I got myself out of debt five years ago, that was the first time I was actually free. I was just lancing before, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, um, I was always chasing the next gig because I was never making enough money to make my monthly nut. I, about five years ago, I paid off all my debts. Well, I started paying off all my debts. I haven't been debt-free for five years, but I started paying off all my debts, I cut up all my credit cards. I decided I don't care what people say about a credit score. I'm not carrying credit cards. I'm not gonna live that lifestyle. I'm not gonna buy into that culture anymore. And I can tell you today that I work less because I don't have to make as much. And so I'm a little bit pickier and choosier today about the jobs that I do. A lot of the jobs that I take are because of the people that are working on them. I wanna work with people that I have respect for, people that I love and that I wanna be around or projects that are really important to me. You know, every once in a while somebody rolls up and they have a project and you're like, yes, I would love to do that. Well, if you're living in debt, you may not be able to take up that opportunity because you have to go do a gig that maybe pays you more money or is more days or something like that. I don't do any of that anymore. Now I try to fill my schedule as much as I can with jobs that I want to be on. And because I'm not required to work so much, I can be a little bit pickier and choosier. I don't have to do 25 days a month to pay my bills. I can do 10 days a month and pay my bills. And if I work more than that, great. And if I work a little bit less than that, that's okay too, because now that I don't carry credit cards and have to make a car payments and all that other stuff every month, I have money in the bank. So I can survive for six months and not have to worry about money. And that's also very nice because when you roll up on set, you're lighter, your mood is better, right? You actually enjoy what you're doing again instead of feeling stressed out because like, what am I doing tomorrow? What do I need to get ready for tomorrow? I don't do any of that. I'm here today. Right. And you're not thinking about, I've got a credit card payment that's coming up and this gig is not going to pay for it. Right. Now what do I do? Right. And see, and I was always chasing the next gig because as far as I was concerned, if I'm on set today, I'm already getting paid for this. Well, that money was already gone. So I needed to be thinking about what I was doing tomorrow because I haven't made that money yet. You know, and today that's not the case at all. Today, if I'm on set, I'm not answering my phone. It's very rare that you will find me on set today on my phone. Where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, anytime we weren't rolling, I was on my phone. Looking for the next gig. Yeah, yeah. And I don't do that anymore. And the biggest reason is because of the whole debt thing. And people think I'm crazy. You know, when I first cut up my credit cards, a lot of people in my family, a lot of the other freelancers that I work with on the regular, uh, Crystal, my business manager who runs Stickman Sound and handles all the money, she called me and ripped me a new one because like, well, how are you gonna travel now? How are you gonna get a rental car? How are you gonna get home if you're in an emergency? I have a debit card for that now. And I have enough money in that account because I save to be able to handle any of those emergencies. And the best part is now it's really not an emergency because I've got the money to pay for it. Where before it was an emergency, I needed to borrow money from a credit card company to pay for something because I didn't have my own. Now the situation's completely different. And I think a lot of people would tell you, the people that knew me before I made this change in my life and today, they would tell you that I'm far happier. I'm a lot looser. I'm, I'm just a more jolly person in general. And it's because I don't worry about money anymore. You know, now I focus on just having a good time and doing a good job for my clients. And that, that keeps the money coming in and <laughs> the happiness continues. 
That's great. Now, it, okay, so you say don't buy that gear until you have the money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Getting the job, what, what kind of tips could you recommend to getting that next freelance gig? Kick ass on the gig you're on today. Show up 15 minutes early. Uh, we work in production, which means our days are usually pretty long. When I book a day for a client, even if they tell me it's going to be a short five-hour day, for example, I don't make plans to go to dinner because that five-hour day could very easily turn into a 10-hour day. When I'm booked, I'm booked. And I'm booked until we're done, not till the 10 hours is over. So if I show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm not looking at my clock at 6. If we're not done, we're not done. And I don't care what time it is. I, I think that's a big part of it. You know, there's always been this saying in the business, you're no better than your last gig. And I really do believe that. You know, go in with a good attitude, shake everybody's hand, be kind and sincere. And being an introvert is a big part of a lot of people's character, especially these days, because communication happens digitally and not face to face. But I would say, you know, put the device down and spend some time with people and build those relationships. You never know where that next gig is going to come from. It might be the producers that love you and call you back on their next project. But I can tell you right now, I've gotten a lot of gigs from all sorts of people in different departments that don't even fully understand what I do for a living. Mm. But they've been on set with me enough to know that they like being around me. You know, like I'll give you an example. There's a woman in Vegas uh, who does a lot of craft service named Karen. And every single time I see Karen, I give her a hug and I thank her for bringing the spread that she's got. I know she doesn't pay for it, right? That's, that's the client's money, right? But she takes the time. She's always in before us so that it can be ready at crew call, right? So she always gets the first good morning. If she's the first person I see, which ironically she always is, you know, good morning, Karen, how are you? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a phone call from a producer or production manager who's been like, so I'm on set. We just realized that we need sound tomorrow. And Karen Sweeney says that you're the best sound guy in town, right? Nice. Does she really know that I'm the best sound guy in town? No, right? And, and there's very well somebody in town that is going to do a better job, maybe possibly, right? But does it really matter? They got my name from her. And as far as she's concerned, I'm the best in town. And so they call me. And whether or not I'm actually available or not doesn't matter. The fact that I'm getting work that way is a direct result of just being kind and shaking hands and making friends on set and paying attention to the people in your community. That's I awesome. think that's, that's a big part of it. Be a community player. If a client calls you and you're not available, don't hang up the phone. Ask them, what are you shooting? Because you know other people that can do that job, right? Give them a phone number. Hey, you know what? I'm not available, but my friend Bob over here is really, really good, and I don't think he's working on those days. Let me give you his phone number. Or better yet, how about you let me call you back or text message you in 10 minutes, and I'll call him myself and see if he's available for you. I do that stuff all the time. Crystal does that stuff all the time. Nice. That's cool. So if uh, some of our listeners were wanting to get into location sound, what would you recommend that they do? Get to know the people in your community. Talk to every community has a film book. Get the film book. Go around and drop in to all the local businesses that support the television community. Talk to camera people, because guess what? We stand behind them every day. So every camera person I know knows a sound person, you know, or needs one from time to time. And a lot of times what happens is a producer might call a camera person that they love working with and say, hey, so we're going to do this shoot, blah, 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 blah. Do you know any good sound people? And they'll go, oh, yeah, I like working with so-and-so. Give them a call. You know, so I would say get to know everybody in your community and be kind and be genuine. And don't be a dick. And um, you'll probably be killing it in no time. It's a community game. You know, we're all in this together to create something for these producers. So, and, and that's our goal in life is to give them what they envision, you know, and if you can do it and have a good attitude, people are just going to love you. That's great. That's great. So uh, as we kind of wrap things up today, do you have any final words of wisdom that you can share with people? Well, I, I would say, I, I would say the most important thing is just be kind. You know, everybody has something going on in their life and it's not always about the production. Some of us are really good at leaving our personal life 
at home and and going out and doing a, a good production day and not allowing those things to seep into our lives. But some people aren't. And so have some grace and be kind because not everybody is in a good situation every single day. And I really think that that is the key is, you know, just for the love of God, don't be a dick. You know, we make TV shows for a living. My wife is a nurse. She's got a real job. Like she's, she's dealing with life and death every day. I record sound for a living. Come on. It's such a privilege to be able to make not, not just a living, but a good living doing something that rots brains. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what a wonderful, what a wonderful luxury that we all have to work in a business where we get to play with microphones and mixers and travel the world experiencing what other people only ever get to see on television or in the movies. Like what an amazing thing. So try to kind of keep that in the back of your mind and be kind that's true. That's true. Awesome. So uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, you can get in touch with me pretty much on just about every old person social media platform. So you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You could probably find me on Snapchat, but you won't get a hold of me because I don't understand it. <laughs> My email is fernando at stickmansound.com. Uh, you can always hit me up there. All right. And also Stickman Sound, we can find you online. And yep. if you're renting or buying or just need a consultation on what to purchase, you're, you're there to help. Yeah, absolutely. You can go to our website and get a hold of us. Well, first off, we have our online store at shop.stickmansound.com. You can call Crystal, who manages the store. Her information is also on our website. Yeah, if you want to rent gear, same thing. Just hit us up. We got your back. Fantastic. All right. I want to say thank you to Fernando Delgado. And if you're out in the Las Vegas area, look him up. Have a good day, everybody. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.